The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live, still from my home. Uh, yes, all this time later. Thrilled to be here with you on this Thursday morning. I had to think uh, when it is. It is the 3rd of June. For those of you who like to know if we're live, we are live in this moment on this day. We are, today's a big day for a lot of different reasons. Today is my dear friend Joanne Lara's birthday. If you are friends with me on Facebook, you know I've started posting videos that we're gonna post throughout the day. And Traven, I think, shared it on Autism Live. Uh, these are videos that we made for her memorial last year. Unfortunately, Joanne, who was a regular on our show, lost her battle with cancer just a few days after her birthday last year. And we're, you know, I think it's always important um, to celebrate the life and not dwell in the, the way it ended. And uh, so we're asking everybody today, do something uh, in memory of Joanne. Be kind to someone, help someone get a job that's on the autism spectrum, speak truth to power, like whatever, be crabby to somebody who deserves to, you to be crabby to them. Remember Joanne in the way that makes sense to you. Be a good friend to someone. We hope that, uh, <clears throat> that you'll remember Joanne in whichever way it feels best and most right to you. Also, we are we are two days, woo, two days away from my, my child turning 18. I, I'm going to be a parent of an adult in two days, and we are a week and a day away from my son being a high school graduate. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, do dance moves. Uh, it's craziness around here. Uh, but thrilled to be here with you um, for this hour to talk about autism in a very special way today. We've got an amazing guest. She's one of my favorite people anywhere, but certainly talking about, if you were talking about the community of people that work at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, which is a lot of great people, she's one of the greatest and one of my favorite people. Um, but she's one of my favorite people on the planet, let me say that. Uh, Veronica Hinojosa is going to be joining us a little bit later on to talk about, she's a BCBA and an expert in the field of autism, but she's specifically going to be talking about the sibling piece. How do we help siblings? How do we uh, support them? How do we foster good relationships between our kiddos on the spectrum and our kiddos not on the spectrum, right? Um, how do we make it work? And, and she's got a particular expertise in this and she'll tell you why when she's here with us a little bit later on. Um, so I uh, wanna make sure that I say to you, we're live right now on Facebook, on YouTube and on Twitter. 
as well as on our homepage, autism-live.com. We hope that you'll check us out in one of those platforms or one of the many other platforms that we are also live on. But I will tell you that the big three are the easiest if you want to interact now. In fact, we love your comments and questions uh, and concerns that you guys write in. And so you can be putting those in right now live on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. If you are watching us recorded and we do podcast the show to every place you can podcast for and have it be a free download, um, we want to thank you. Right now, we're considered the number one autism podcast worldwide, and that's because of you guys. So please keep watching, keep liking, keep sharing, subscribe. Can I just tell you, um, we've got some content that's going to be coming up that we would really like it. When you go to our homepage, autism-live.com, a pop-up will come up and it will say, would you like to subscribe? We have not been sending the, the weekly um, viewer guide the last, I would say, month and a half, but we're going to be resuming that in June. And we've got some other content that's specifically curated for you. We're not going to spam you. We just don't do that. We don't sell the list. We just don't do that. So please subscribe. Uh, we would love it when you subscribe. Um, and while you're there on the homepage, you can check out all the things that we have there on the homepage. Plus there is a chat button at the bottom. Just don't be fooled. It's not an interactive chat. If you write in a question, it comes into our bank of questions, but we don't have the ability to write back to you in that moment. I know it's a bummer and I don't like it and someday we'll change it, but not today. Um, so I have to make you aware of that. So lots of ways to watch us. We've been doing the show now. We're in our 10th year. So there's lots of content. And if you don't see what you need, ask a question, right? Uh, and we are generally live Monday through Friday, um, except when we're not. We do have, I am going to be taking off a little bit of time next, at the end of next week when my son graduates, uh, just a couple of days. And during those days, we will show best of uh, shows that Traven curates because Traven is our amazing producer and who does a great job. I can't say that enough. Uh, and there, I've said it on camera, so it's it's a thing, right? All right. Uh, on Thursdays, before we get started with our guests, we like to do something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one concept, one acronym, and we try to make sense of what in the hey, nani nani are those experts talking about, right? What does it have to do with us? Why should we care? Why do I need to learn one more term, Shannon? Um, and I'll tell you, we only do terms that we think are worthwhile to take a couple of minutes to talk about it, because in the end, if you know it and understand it, you'll know how to ask an expert how to make it happen, right? Or if an expert is talking to you about it, you'll understand what they're talking about, at least a cursory explanation. So uh, Traven picked a, a one from the pile that we haven't done in a really long time, but a lot of you write in about, so thrilled. Thank you, Traven. Go ahead, show us our jargon for today. First, we're going to give you an actual definition, and then we're going to give you a working definition. Uh, and then we're going to try to see if we can't put it into some form of context. You know me, I like to make fun of the actual definition because everyone needs a hobby. Uh, so today's term, food selectivity. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I first time I heard this, I thought of those really old, uh, it's probably way past anything that you guys would remember because I'm ancient. Um, but they used to have these cafeterias 
that you would go into, I only saw them in movies. They didn't even really exist when, when I was a kid, but you would go into a cafeteria and it was all like the beginnings of vending machines where it was these little things that turned and you would push a button and it would spit it out and then you would pay for that. So and when I think of food selectivity, I think of that like carousels of food that you get to select, a big, big variety, right? Well, that's not what we're talking about. So let's take a look at what our actual definition of food selectivity is when we're talking about it within the realm of autism. So food selectivity, uh, it is, uh, includes food refusal, limited food repertoire, and high frequency single food intake. Ah, high frequency single food intake. Uh, does that sound like the, the person is a car? Like it's a, you know, or, or those uh, reuptake uh, inhibitors? Uh, what in the heck is that? But I think we all know what food refusal is, right? And limited food repertoire. I think that we're all pretty familiar. But what in the heck is high frequency single food intake? Let's move on to our uh, working definition and see if we can't get this a little bit clearer. So food selectivity, it's picky eaters. I think we can all understand that, right? But what's the difference between when something like, you know, I think all, all of us are picky about some things, right, that we eat. But when is it something that is such a problem that we need intervention? And when is it something that is such a problem that it could be be preventing the child from thriving, like literally become a life or death situation. So first of all, let's talk about a spectrum, uh, not just the autism spectrum, but a spectrum of picky eaters. And I think that, you know, it's normal for all kids on and off the spectrum to have certain foods that they like more than other foods, right? And of course, if they have a choice, wasn't it Evelyn Kung who was saying yesterday, like, look, if we could all just do what we wanted to do and only do that, wouldn't we? And so if, if we were able to just eat whatever we wanted 24-7 and have no ramifications from it, what would we eat? Um, I would not eat beans, uh, <laughs> can I just say? And yet a great deal of my diet is beans, uh, you know, because I'm vegan at the moment. So, you know, what, what's the story here? Why am I eating beans if it's not like, I'd rather eat butter pecan ice cream 24 seven. But hey, I'm allergic to milk and I have diabetes. So while ice cream may taste good for a second, it's not gonna be something that's good for me. So I put it through a whole filter of things about how, how do I want to feel right now? And how do I want to feel later on? And, and do I want to be healthy? And do I want to stick around, right? We can't expect children on or off the spectrum to be making those kinds of choices for themselves, right? So we should expect a certain amount of picky eaters. But you and I both know that when we're talking about this on the autism spectrum, we have kids who will only eat one thing or one color or one texture, right? That's an entirely different thing. And that requires some help and support. And people are gonna tell you, oh, they'll grow out of it. You know, it'll, it, all kids are picky eaters. And you and I both know common sense filter 
that that kind of one size fits all thinking doesn't really apply to our kids. Just isn't useful. And people who are saying to you, all kids are picky eaters, yes. But we're talking about a different place on the spectrum. We're talking about, you know, I can only feed my child French fries and chicken nuggets. And by the way, the French fries have to come from the Burger King on this street, not the one on that street. And they have to be a certain level of hot and a certain level of salted. Otherwise, my child won't eat. That's an entirely different thing. And I would tell you lovingly, parent to parent, you're probably not going to be able to crack that problem on your own. And you shouldn't have to, right? There are experts who are really good at food selectivity and it's a slow process. It takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, and a lot of adherence to it. Um, but they're wildly successful. Now, you know, I'm saying that, but I want to give you uh, <laughs> the absolute best possible information going into this, because I know some of you are going to call up your ABA provider today and go, hey, I'd like this fixed by next Wednesday, because my mother-in-law is coming. And next Wednesday, I need for my child to eat her lasagna. And he does not eat red foods, right? I just want to reiterate, these interventions take time and that they are effective, but it's not unusual for something to take six months to a year to really see the big, big improvement. But, you know, what's fun about that is that, you know, a year goes by kind of like, look at how fast the last year went by, right? Um, like seemed like it was interminable while we were going through it, but now suddenly it's like, wow, a year passed? That's kind of crazy, right? And it's sort of the same thing with treatments for your kiddos with autism, um, that it's gonna feel excruciating while you're going through it, but then you arrive someplace and you go, huh, well, you know, that wasn't that bad. It took a year, but we're here right? If it works, we're sort of willing to put the time in. And I'm telling you, if you're working with a professional for food selectivity, you are going to see some improvement, but it's going to be slow moving. But I guarantee you that you, if you really follow the intervention and you got a good expert, you'll look back a year later and you'll go, oh, we're in an entirely different place than where we started out. Um, so, you know, we have those picky eaters. We have the kiddos that there's a real selectivity issue and you really got to get good ABA help, good quality ABA help for that, or a, a feeding expert. But then there is a whole other place on the spectrum where kids are ingesting things that are not edible. That's pica. They call that pica. And, um, and then there are kids who just won't eat. And, and, you know, we talk about food refusal, but I'm talking about kids who are not at their recommended weight and that the doctor has looked at them and said, either we are on the cusp of, or we are in failure to thrive. And I just want to lovingly say that if you have a kiddo that's in that category, that is an entirely different intervention. And it's a five alarm fire. You need to get help and support today for that because, you know, kiddos need to eat and they need to ingest food and you have to look at things medically. You have to make sure that there's nothing preventing them from swallowing, um, that there's no pain, that there's no ulcers that could be causing that. And then we have to work to get that taken care of. So big spectrum, not one size fits all, the food selectivity thing. And you kind of have to know 
for yourself, like, where do I think we fall on this? And then you got to push for services wherever that is. If your child is just being picky, there's a whole lot of things that we can do. There's a whole lot of research that we can help you with to expand their diet so that we literally get to the point where our kiddos eat the rainbow, you know? Um, and I've got tons of advice if that's what's going on, right? But if we're really in that, you know, um, that area where there's only one color or two colors or one texture or whatever, stop thinking that it was something you did because it isn't. You know, I always say that Ileana Vincent, save yourself. Um, you need some help and it's not your fault, um, but there's good help available, okay? And, and you can move this dial. I've seen it all too many times. Now, uh, <laughs> I always wanna like apologize and say to people, uh, I have more food selectivity issues than my kid. And my husband has way more food selectivity uh, issues in some areas than others. Like uh, my husband will pretty much, you know, he's, he's not allergic to anything. He, he can eat anything, but present a green bean to my husband and see what happens. I'm, I guarantee you it'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> be like, what is the purpose of this green thing on my plate? Uh, not his favorite thing. Um, my son is the Epicurious one. He's, he's, you know, he's the person who comes downstairs and says, hey, can we get squid ink because I want to make squid ink pasta? And I go, who is this child? Um, so I did not have these issues. So I'm giving you an apology. My son has tons of allergies, so we have to meter, you know, still what his diet is, but I didn't have the food refusal thing. I am that parent that everyone loves to hate. I remember being in an Ikea when he was a baby and we, it took us too long at Ikea. You know, what was, we were waiting for something that they were, you know, moving someplace so that they could get at the thing that we wanted to get at in the big warehouse. And it got to be past lunchtime. And my kid was hungry, right? He was probably one and a half. And so we went into the cafeteria. It was before he was diagnosed, before we were fully seeing him regress into autism. We went into the cafeteria and they had steamed vegetables. It was just steamed carrots and broccoli. And I don't know what else was in there. Um, maybe some zucchini. And uh, I ordered two plates of it and took my toddler over to the table and sat down and he scarfed those vegetables down like it, like his life depended on it. And before we were done, almost everyone in the cafeteria came up and said, how did you get your baby to do that? <laughs> you know, and I will tell you that, um, you know, just the picky eaters, not all the other stuff on the spectrum, kids don't like vegetables for a very specific reason because they have more taste buds than you and I. And there's a lot of acrid things in vegetables. And so if they're overcooked, it tastes bitter to them. And so they spit it out. And sometimes there's a textural thing too for some kiddos, both on the spectrum and off the spectrum. Um, so it's best not to overcook a vegetable, um, but it's also important that when they're hungry, when kids are hungry and then they're not having a food selectivity, you know, on that other end of the spectrum, they will try more things when they're hungry. I, will, I always love the families who say to me, 
we tried forever to get our child to try to eat an apple or a banana or something. And then we went on vacation and that was all they had. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And our child sat right down and ate it. And, and I, so I do want to say to you, if you were on the end of the spectrum here where it's like your child is picking, you're like, I just wish they ate more things, right? If that's where you're at, I do want to encourage you that several times a day to make available um, fresh vegetables and fresh fruit. Don't turn it into a battle. All of our studies say that turning it into a battle just creates a bigger problem. But the studies are very clear that you have to present new foods. I think it's something like 22 times before kids will actually taste and ingest them. But that means putting it on the plate or putting it on the table, making it available and not saying anything about it, saying, you know, eat your vegetables, try that apple. It won't hurt you. Just stick it in your mouth. It means being willing to put it there on the plate. And I know it's a terrible waste of food and that people, you know, go, are going without food different places. But, you know, if you have a dog or if you know that, you know, package it up later and throw it in your breakfast in the morning, whatever, you know, make soup at the end of the week. You don't have to waste it. But if you put it out, make it available and model the behavior for your kiddos. If you're eating it um, and not making faces, kids tend to notice that. So that's if you just have the mildly picky eater. Anything other than that, you really want to be talking with an expert, okay? There are a whole bunch of things that can be done. So there you go, food selectivity. I know a lot of you are in that neighborhood. Let's move on to our question of the day and see what we're asking you today. Uh, so name a food that you would never eat. For me, this list is so long. Like I would never eat monkey brain. Like that's just not going to happen. Not ever, not ever. I think almost every fruit and every vegetable I'm willing to at least try. And I usually like them, but I don't eat meat anymore. I didn't for a lot of years, had some stomach issues and was told that I needed to put meat, some meat back in my diet. And I'm now, and then I became diabetic. <laughs> so now I'm back off of meat and feeling better. Um, but everybody's ecosystem is different. So what won't you guys eat? Nobody's writing in today. I'm not getting the chat. Is there, is there an issue with the chat, uh, Trayvon, or is everybody quiet? Somebody tell me a food that you would never eat no matter what, no matter what, uh, so I can see if the chat is working today. We might be having problems with it. Uh, okay, because I'd love to know, what is, what is the line? Trayvon, what's something that you would never eat no matter what? I used to hate wax beans, but I can eat wax beans now. I just don't like them. It's like um, they're, they're flavorless, which is what my husband says about cantaloupe. I don't understand that. Cantaloupe is the most delicious thing ever. Oh, so Traven said clams, um, that he doesn't want to eat clams. I used to eat clams. Clams are like another thing. It's like rubber. I don't understand why anybody wants to eat or any crustacean. I, I have a uh, a good friend who's the same way that it's like, no, 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 no. These are, these are things that are meant to clean the ocean. I'm not eating. So there you go. What about you guys? Uh, oh, okay. Somebody finally wrote in and said, I would never eat broccoli. I'm sending you a hug. Broccoli is one of my favorite things on the face of the planet, but you and George Bush senior, uh, not the fans of the broccoli. We always said to my son, it's like eating baby trees. Let's eat baby trees right now. Um, and we enjoyed that. 
Uh, and of course my head goes, well, you haven't had broccoli cooked properly, <laughs> but some people are just not gonna like broccoli. I'm sending you a hug. Uh, you don't have to like broccoli. That's, you know, you don't have to do it. Okay, so keep them coming, you guys. Thank you for writing in Yaima so that I know that the chat is working. Tell me what food you would never eat, you guys. Uh, let's gross each other out. Uh, there are so many things like tripe and oh, like things I'm just never going to touch. Okay. Um, all right, but let's move on to our topic for the week. And because um, I think, oh, it's eating the rainbow. It is not what I thought it was. Uh, but this is a topic that I talk about a lot, eating the rainbow and how important it is. And I talk about it that way because I think it's an accessible way for the kiddos. You know, rainbows. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I miss that hugs back to me. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, our kids, uh, I, you know, it's, it's so funny years ago when Jem was little, they had, um, was it Jamie Oliver who was doing the food revolution and they were going into schools, high schools, even here in Los Angeles. And they were teaching the high school students about nutrition and what to eat because most of the kids were eating things that came out of cardboard boxes or were wrapped in wax paper from uh, a fast food place. And they saw, and this, and these were neurotypical kids graduating from high school and Jamie Oliver, you know, stood up and held like a picture of a hamburger and said, what, where, where does this food come from? Uh, you know, and, and so the appropriate answer would be like, well, the bread comes from wheat and the, the burger came from a cow and the kids just didn't know it. They, they just, it was mind boggling to me. And, um, and he showed them pictures of vegetables and they didn't know the vegetables. That's a little less mind boggling for me. I went to college and didn't know what an eggplant was. Um, now it's one of my favorite things on the face of the planet, but it reminded me when I had this baby who was not speaking at that point, how important it is to language the food that when we're feeding our kids, that we take them through the process. I want to encourage you. It is now safe pretty much wherever you live, unless you're currently in Australia. Um, it's like planting time, plant something with your child. You know, in a lot of times in kindergarten, they give you one bean seed and they tell you to stick it in a clear cup and, you know, have it grow and have your child water it. Um, to see how it grows roots and things like that, man, plant a garden with your kiddos. And if you only have a windowsill, I think it's better to do it in a glass to start with. So that, cause if you plant it in the ground, they don't get to see the roots. And the thing about having the clear thing, they get to see the roots. But I think it, we have a, a responsibility of as caregivers in this generation to connect our children and especially our kiddos on the spectrum to their food and the process of food. It's another one of those things that sometimes, you know, you'll go, well, I'm just going to do this because it seems like the thing to do, but you might find a passion of your child. Um, I, I know that um, Elaine Hall, Coach E from the Miracle Project, her son on the spectrum, now this is his vocation. He is an extraordinary organic farmer. And, and he is a young man who is non-vocal. He communicates with an iPad. Um, and there's a lot of places in his life where he needs support, not in the garden. He could support all of us in the garden, right? He's found his passion, his vocation. So you never know, your kiddo might end up being somebody who really likes to garden and likes to plant things. Um, 
but I think it's important that we do language the food, take it through the process for them, do the planting, do the harvesting, take them to farmer's markets when it's appropriate, where you are for COVID, and, and have them see the array of different colors of things. Um, have them help pick it out and then have them, you know, right now I have a purple bean crisis on my <laughs> in my life. I planted a bunch of beans, purple beans, and I have purple beans for me, you, and everybody you know. Way too many, right? Um, but it's it's a fascinating thing. And there's a whole science experiment because you harvest the beans and then you snap them, which is a very sensory satisfying thing. And then once you put them in the pot to cook them, they turn green. So it's like a magic trick. Imagine doing that with your kiddos. So um, we don't just have an expectation that they're gonna eat the rainbow. We have to teach them about the rainbow so that they will eat the rainbow. Uh, Fateh is sending me a hug. Uh, she says, I would never eat pork right there with you. My son on the spectrum never ate vegetable except potatoes and any fruit except an apple. And that's, you know, um, that's a hard thing, right? Uh, we have a lot of kids that just want to eat white things um, that, you know, and potatoes are the thing. But we know that long term, that's not going to be a healthy thing. So that's one of the reasons why we talk about getting an expert to start working on expanding his repertoire of what he will eat. Uh, Rocio says, my son will only eat rice or cereal. That's it. We've tried everything and we model, but no use. He is three. And so on that spectrum that I was talking about, we're not just at picky eater anymore. We're really at that food selectivity and it's important to have an expert. I would encourage you, first of all, it's important to be getting good quality ABA. And if you're getting good quality ABA, then that means you have a BCBA, a board certified behavior analyst, and you're talking with them and they're coming up with an intervention plan that will be slow super slow, but what I want next year, a year from today, Rocio, is to hear that your child is eating green beans, you know, or, or some, or maybe he's eating broccoli, right? Um, and, and I think that if you work with an expert, you will see that you will have made significant progress this time next year, but don't listen to the people who say, oh, they grow out of that. Um, I know teenagers who only eat cereal and are very unhealthy um, and have diabetes. And, you know, we don't we don't want that for your child. Uh, speaking of board certified behavior analysts, uh, we have one joining us right now, the fabulous Veronica Hinojosa. And as I said earlier, one of my favorite people. Thank you, Rocio, an expert from ABA. Yes. Um, which would be a board certified behavior analyst. There are also food experts, um, but they're harder to find. There are many more BCBAs who can help you. So uh, Veronica Hinojosa is joining us right now. She is a BCBA. She is an amazing expert in the field of autism, and she works at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. We'll have her tell us a little bit about what that is, but she's joining us today to talk about siblings and how we support siblings and how we help foster good relationships between our kids on the spectrum and their siblings, whether the siblings are also on the spectrum or not. So Veronica, welcome to the show. Hi, Shannon. It is so great to have you here. I, I waxed poetic about you before, but I want to say to your face, uh, you are one of my favorite people at CARD, but you're also one of my favorite people, period. Um, that you have a heart that is bigger than the size of Texas, 
which is where I assume you are coming to us from this morning. Um, and I have seen you make the difference in so many families' lives, honestly. I'm gonna get emotional. Um, but I, I adore you. You know how there's just some people in life, you guys, you know that they're always going to come from a place of wanting to support our kids regardless, doesn't matter what time of day it is, doesn't matter what day a week it is. They're just always gonna come. It doesn't even matter if it's what's best for them personally. There are people who, who do what's best for our kiddos. This is who Veronica is. She is one of those people, an ally of the first order. So Veronica, tell them what you do what at, for CARD right now. What is what is you what does your job look like? Um, so currently I'm the regional manager for Central Texas. So I oversee our clinics in Austin, DFW, and Houston. Very cool. Very, very cool. And you are someone who is an expert on the sibling issue, and this is a subject that you talk quite a bit about. Um, I don't know if you want to share with everybody why that is of particular interest to you. Yes, so um, my brother had ABA therapy. My brother was diagnosed with autism in 1989, um, and he had ABA therapy as we were growing up, and it was um, one of the most important and significant and meaningful experiences of our lives, and it improved his quality of life, my entire family's quality of life. So I'm a huge advocate of ABA and also um, ABA treating the entire family. Yes, and, and, and I love, you know, over the years, I've had the opportunity to interact with you. My son and I actually came to Texas, uh, I guess it was three summers ago now, officially, and got to spend quite a bit of time with you touring Texas and talking with families and talking with staff. And I got to see you in action and she's a force, you guys, a force for good. Um, and I think that families in particular, you have a way with families, because I think it is evident in everything that you do that it's it's about the whole family for you um and it makes total sense to me because that you were a whole family you were part of a whole family and that you have a greater understanding than those of us who did not go through that i just think i think it lends an authenticity to your voice which is palpable like we all feel it when we're in your presence so I thank you. You came uh, the other day and did a presentation um, for a group that I lead. And I said, we got, why are we not doing this on Autism Live? And thank you for being willing to do it so soon. So talk to us about um, siblings. And, and, and right now, you guys, if you're watching, please feel free to write in if you have a specific um, sibling issue. Uh, if there's something that you want to ask Veronica that's very unique to your family or something that you want to know, like, how do I deal with this or how do I deal with that? But but start us off, Veronica, and talk about some of the considerations that you ask families to think about. Um, so I think a lot of families are really interested in involving siblings in treatment, um, but it can always obviously be a challenge. I mean, I think everybody on the planet can sympathize with our parents and the fact that not only are they juggling um, all of the needs of a child with special needs who has developmental disabilities, but then also calculating in their other children and trying to have enough love and attention and affection for, for all of the little, little people that they're charged to, to care for. Um, so in terms of making sure that you know, sibling relationships are really successful. Um, one of the things we talked about last week when we were when we were meeting with your group, Shannon, was just making sure that um, we're being really intentional about how we're going about addressing a the child's 
the child who has special needs with the siblings, you know, how are we explaining autism or how are we explaining the developmental disability? How are we presenting information, but also how are we creating the opportunity for siblings to ask questions about their sibling um, and how to address questions that the sibling might be fielding themselves out in the community and out in there in there with their groups. Um, and then also just ways that parents can can sort of help feel like they are fairly and compassionately dividing their attention or allocating attention and, and care for each of their kiddos so that they're not feeling guilty about spending more time with one child over the other. Yeah, I mean, even just everything you just said right there, it's like, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Because one of the things that you talked about the other day that made me stop and go, I never really thought about this before, is that it took me years after my son was diagnosed with autism People would come up to me and go, so, you know, what's, what's the deal with him? Or, you know, what's his diagnosis? And I would say autism. And they were like, what, what is that exactly? I hear about it all the time. And then I would have to suddenly have the elevator pitch, the 30 second, 60 second explanation of what autism was. And I fell at sea. It took me years to figure out and practice and rehearse what I was going to say when somebody asked me that question, and it was a big deal to me, and I would hone it and perfect it because people would ask me three, four, five times a day. It never once occurred to me that the siblings go through that even more, and you said that people are asking the siblings. Talk to us about that. Is that what you experienced? Definitely that was what I experienced, especially so early on um, when my brother and I were children, you know, it was the early 90s. Uh, autism still wasn't as as well known as it is now. I think the rate back then was one in 10,000. Um, and so my friend's parents were very curious about what was going on with him. And I remember being in kindergarten and first grade and riding in their cars and them asking me, so what, what ended up happening with your brother? Um, what is autism? And at that time, you know, I, it had been described to me as brain damage. So I would tell them, well, he's got a form of brain damage um, and he's not talking. Um, so we're teaching him sign language and we're using pictures around the house. And I would try to explain in my very, very young age. Um, a kindergartner. As a kindergartner. Yeah. Yeah. How, how and it's hard for us to hear that somebody was describing to it to you as brain damage. I, I recently had uh, a, a family member who is probably, she was probably eight at the time that she, I was on the phone with her. And um, this is one of my little grandnieces. And she asked me about, she said, well, I, I hear that my, you know, cousin has autism. And, and, she, and I said, oh, did you have any questions about that? And she said, no, you know, they told me that that's brain damage. And I was like, oh, no, no. definitions. Right. Um, but somebody had told her that and she was going to carry that with her for, you know, and, and, and we have to think about that, you guys, because I don't know who said that to her, but now she was going to say that to her younger siblings. And at what point were they going to learn that that's not the case? When they ran into someone like you or I, they were going to learn that that wasn't the case. When did you learn that your brother didn't have brain damage? Probably when I started graduate school and started a go. program dedicated, um, or when I started working at CARD as a as a behavior technician. Okay, so think about that, you guys. But think about as hard as it is for us to language it. What is it like for a kindergartner 
or a first grader. And I want to say shame on you to the parents whose car you were in who put you on that spot. Like, what were they thinking? But it never occurred to me that people are going to ask your kiddos to give, the, give a definition of the diagnosis of their sibling and to prepare them for that, to give them a phrase to say um, that sits right with your family and that accurately describes how your family feels about your child's diagnosis. It's, it's an extra responsibility, but I, I think, and you made this point, that having that conversation helps to answer their questions. Absolutely. Um, and, and that that's a better place to be from, uh, which is pretty remarkable. But then when you, when you said your first statement, talking about how do you split up your time so that you make sure that all of the kiddos get what they need, like it, I just have the one, so I can't even imagine. I haven't had to choose who, if I'm going to go to therapy or soccer game, what do you say to parents who are facing these kinds of things? So again, like I mentioned last week, um, I, I had read that amazing analogy the other day where parenting is like juggling a bunch of balls and some of the balls are plastic and really strong and, and unbreakable and some of the balls are glass. So it's not about not letting any balls drop. It's okay if some balls fall down. Um, you just want to try to take care of the ones that are that are really fragile. So I think for parents, you know, it's if you have your child enrolled in therapy and you have your other child enrolled in soccer and gymnastics and karate and and you know, violin lessons. Um, it's okay if you don't make it to every soccer game or every karate match. You just want to make sure that you're there for the big ones the same way that it's okay if you don't make it to every therapy session and observe every speech appointment or every OT appointment. Um, it's just a matter of trying to find that balance and being there for the important stuff. Um, and sometimes maybe you're not going to be able to make it to any of those appointments or to any of those events. Um, and in which point, again, it's just a matter of finding another way to really validate and show love and affection towards that child, even if you're not able to be there physically presently. You know, it's it's doing a little after party ceremony at home um, or writing them a special note or, or giving them a little token of appreciation. There are so many ways to show love and affection to your children. It doesn't always have to look the same way as as it doesn't have to look the way you imagined it and it doesn't have to look the way that your peers are, are doing it. It's just reminding the child how much you love them and how much you care about them, even if you can't physically be there in the moment. Kids just need to hear it constantly. Yes, yes, on and off the spectrum, they need to hear it. Um, but I wanna make sure that I clarify because when we talk about, you know, you physically as the caregiver don't have to be present at all of those things. But um, I, I know that, you know, it's important to your kiddo, if you've signed them up to go to soccer, if at all possible, that the kiddo gets to soccer so that you, you're managing to, you know, figure out who's taking them to soccer. Maybe you're dropping them off. Maybe you can't stay, but that they have the opportunity to do it. And when it's things like medical appointments, like therapy and things like that, maybe you're not able to be there to observe but that the kiddo gets to keep the appointment because those are like doctor's appointments and we wanna make sure that like that's its own little thing, getting that all oiled and greased and running, but picking and choosing what you can physically be present for. In some states like California, I'm very proud of California, California will pay you money to either have yourself or to pay to someone else to drive your kiddo to therapy. 
which I absolutely, because California, and you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that money. You have to show that you are doing it, that your child needs it, so on and so forth. Um, but I love it because they're acknowledging that that's something that not every parent has to do. And that, you know, somebody has to do it and someone should be paid the time and the gas and the car mileage to do that. Um, California is, is a little bit rare in that, that uh, I'm not aware of many other states that do that. But, you know, in that instance, allocating and going, okay, it doesn't have to be me driving the kiddo to therapy, but what's essential is that they got there and that I'm letting them know that I care about them. Just wanted to clarify that. Now, Parker yeah. has written in, I'm sorry, did you want to add something to that? I did just, you know, absolutely quality therapy, quality treatment, life-changing treatment is a full-time job. It's a full-time commitment. So absolutely as a parent, I think it's critical as a caregiver, it's critical to find a way to incorporate all of the things, right? To incorporate child A's therapy and, and the day in and day out commitment that it requires for that therapy to be effective um, with the other events in, in your life. Um, but at the same time too, going back to what we talked about last week, making sure that as the parent, you are A, being intentional about coordinating all of those things, creating a schedule, organizing your life, but also taking care of yourself so that you're not killing yourself trying to accomplish all of that. What are you doing for yourself? What are you doing for self-care? That, that will make you a better parent and that will help you get everything else organized and in order. Yeah. I find that we all say that, Veronica, it's another thing entirely to figure out how, how to do it. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, you know, I know people said it to me and I didn't listen very well. I was like, I'll do that next year. Um, and I, I, I just was having that conversation with someone the other day that I was recognizing somebody who was momming it really hard, working and taking care of her kiddo. And I and I said to this person who might be watching, who I said, you know, love you, but don't make the same mistakes that I did. And that I watched other people make and not everybody survives it, you guys. Um, that's the sad, sad truth is that we all think, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll do that next year, but I've seen parents get sick and not, not be there next year. Like that's a real thing. So uh, I don't know what it's going to take for all of us to really get with that program, but uh, we have to keep saying it. Self-care, it's got to be somewhere. It's the oxygen mask. If you don't put it on yourself, you're not going to be there to put it on your kid. It's just the truth. Now, Parker has written in with a very specific issue. Parker identifies himself as being an adult on the spectrum. He says that he and his sister get don't get along all the time, that his sister also um, has a diagnosis uh, that he identifies it as bipolar. Um, but he says, I need help to keep our relationship great. And I, what a wonderful thing that that is on your list, Parker, that that is something that you would like. Um, I think that's remarkable. But he would like to know, do you have any advice for him, Veronica? Absolutely. Um, I think Parker, one of the things that we always talk about is the fact that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to fix the problem. You don't have to repair the relationship overnight. It doesn't, it's not going to happen in one day. Um, but if it's something that you and your sister really want to do, or if it's something that you really want to do, I think the key to developing a great friendship with her is just to keep telling her, I want us to have a good friendship. I want us to have a good relationship. Let's try doing 
X activity. And you guys can keep trying to do different, if you guys both have your own needs and, and that makes it a little bit more challenging to find activities that both of you guys enjoy doing together, I would just keep trying different stuff. It doesn't always have to be, you know, we're gonna play a board game with each other or we're gonna help each other, um, you know, with a work task or with a project. Maybe sometimes it's just, let's just spend a couple of hours in the same room with each other while we're doing our own thing. Um, but we call that pairing. So just, just work on systematically, little by little, trying to pair with your sister where you guys can both do activities with each other or near each other. And then eventually you guys will find more and more things that you have in common that you guys can share. Um, but essentially it's just a matter of not giving up on it. And if something doesn't work, try something else. That's the whole basis of ABA, right? Not every intervention is gonna work the first time. It's a matter of trying things out observing and seeing how they go. And then if something isn't working, tweaking tweaking the plan until you find a system that works for you and for the people that you care about. Yeah, great advice. And and I, I, I love that sometimes, you know, we think, oh, I, I you know, I'm, this, I, I'm gonna reach out, I'm gonna try one thing and we go, that didn't work. I think that we've all had that experience at some point. But there are other things that we do in life that we go, I don't know how many times it's going to take, so I'm just going to keep on trying. And it, that, it's that intentional piece that you were talking about, that this is what autism taught me. I mean, I, I learned with autism that if you keep doing the right things often enough, that you will make progress. And that it wasn't about, we're going to do this once and, oh, it didn't work. And I, and I went into it understanding that because a parent told me that. And, and I learned, wow, when you keep plugging at something, you see movement and eventually you see progress. So um, I just want to thank you for, for sharing that with Parker. And, and Parker, I hope that by being intentional and telling your sister that it's important to you, that perhaps that will start a, a process that will lead to a better relationship. And just to uh, add to that, Shannon, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Parker, I would definitely also try to do activities that you and your sister both really enjoy. When we do things that are hard, but we do them while we're doing things we enjoy, it's easier to look forward to them. It's easier to, to tolerate them. So definitely look for stuff that both of you guys enjoy or that one of you guys really enjoys, because that'll make the process more, it'll, it'll, it'll help you guys look forward to, to spending time with each other. So now on the flip of that, though, because Parker's an adult and it sounds like his sister is an adult, if we have a caregiver who's listening to this and going, oh, I'm afraid this is going to be my kids when they grow up, what are some things that a parent can be doing today to help siblings to forge that relationship? Again, I think, you know, if you, if you know your kids really like swimming, like which kid, which kids don't like swimming, take them to the swimming pool with each other. You know, obviously make sure you have a second adult with you so that everybody's got somebody, you know, keeping an eye on the children. Um, again, a therapist is a great resource for that. If you're specifically working on like developing that sibling relationship and you need a little bit of support, um, you always want to make sure that it's clinically appropriate to have a, a therapist or, or a treatment provider with you when you're doing something like that. But if you have somebody there to support you so that you guys can work on fostering that relationship, um, you know, it can be swimming, it can be going to Six Flags or to Disneyland, it can be any activity that you know the kids will super enjoy. But the more you can, you can have the kids work on doing those things with each other so that, again, it's something that they both really, really look forward 
forward to. Um, and then you just want to constantly praise the siblings for the things that they're doing that help develop that relationship. So if they spontaneously remember to take turns, if they spontaneously smile at each other, try to show each other how to do things, you want to reinforce and praise every single opportunity you have, because that's going to be what develops that those skills in that child. Um, I think I was telling you last week, Shannon, one of the best things my mother did, one of the smartest things she did when I was growing up was she would always tell other adults what a great sister I was, what a great caregiver I was for my brother. And that really made me want, that became a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. I wanted to be the great big sister that my mother told my teachers and, and our friends that I was. And so just constantly giving children that praise um, will help develop that that desire and that it'll inspire them to be, to be great brothers and sisters. That's amazing. Um, we have somebody who wrote in and, and I, I, while I'm reading this, Mr. ABS, if you can tell us what state you're in, that would be super helpful. Uh, they've written in and said family of five with a recently diagnosed three-year-old in January will be four uh, in just a couple of days. Uh, single income denied Medicaid has been seeing occupational therapy speech since two years to be proactive, haven't chosen ABA and wonder how. They go on to say he loves his two sisters, my wife and I, but we all deal with the hitting, scratching, pinching, spitting. How to curb these behaviors and how to better explain to his sisters, uh, the sisters are six and nine, and thank you for telling us that you're in Virginia. Uh, it's funny, somebody just asked me last night about the uh, Medicaid waivers in Virginia, and I need to be looking that up to know more about Virginia, but. I do want to say about the Medicaid thing, if you were, you probably applied for Medicaid and applied as a regular person and you were denied because you make too much money to apply for Medicaid as a regular person, but you should be able to reapply on behalf of your child and say that your child has a disability and because they have a diagnosis of autism, that is considered a, a disability. So you're, if you reapply under that status, your child should not be um, denied and should get Medicaid. And I don't know if Medicaid, and I don't even know because you're Texas, uh, but I don't know which grant, which waiver in Virginia you need to be able to get Medicaid. But I will look into that. You don't know if they take just regular Medicaid in Virginia, do you, Veronica? I I do not. I do not. But if, if the Medicaid plan doesn't work out, I believe the Affordable Care Act plan is still, you know, they extended the deadline for people to apply for um, commercial plans through the through the healthcare marketplace this year because of COVID. So I would we've had lots of families in Texas who have been able to purchase individual plans for their child um, without necessarily because Texas doesn't have Medicaid coverage yet either. Um, you know, and so families have been able to pursue individual plans for the child in order to get full coverage for ABA. Um, Definitely, if, you're, if your child who's turning four is engaging in aggressive behaviors and, and scratching and, and hitting and everything, ABA is going to be critical to, to start as soon as possible. Um, we know as clinicians, as, as providers, that all, all aggression, all of those inappropriate behaviors, they're all they're all communication. Your child is trying to communicate and doesn't have a reliable way of getting their needs met right now. Um, so the sooner you can get them involved in ABA so that they can start working on developing more appropriate ways of, of expressing their needs, that's going to be life-changing for your whole family. Um, in the meantime, you know, in the meantime, as a family, I would also, I, for for the sake of your, of your six-year-old and your nine-year-old, I would, I would, 
put together a plan for what to do when the three-year-old engages in aggression. So you know that when they start to engage in aggression, you know, your other kiddos might say, okay, I'm going to give them space. I'm going to keep my hands to myself because I don't want to accidentally hurt them. And I'm going to come get mom and dad, or I'm going to come get dad or mom, whoever is available. Um, and that way they know, you know, maybe they give sibling a pillow or something that they're, that they can, that they can safely hit. It's, it can just be a plan that you, you as your family feel is safe. Um, but giving that plan and expressing that plan to the six-year-old and the nine-year-old is going to make them feel safer. And it's going to make them, it's going to help it ensure that they are also addressing those inappropriate behaviors appropriately so that it doesn't inadvertently, no one inadvertently gets injured and um, your, your other children don't accidentally reinforce the aggression. Because a lot of times what will happen is, you know, child A starts to hit or scratch or gets upset and then child B hits and scratches back and then it becomes a back and forth and eventually everybody is is trying to get what they want and you know you give in because you're so tired and they're hurting each other and you're giving them the toy that they were wanting in the first place and now everybody has learned okay when I hit and scratch I'll get what I want and I'll get what I need um yeah. so so you really want to be thoughtful about creating a plan that will avoid that Give, give your three-year-old an appropriate way of asking for what they need, but also giving the six and the nine-year-old and the other children a way of, of protecting themselves and protecting their, their younger sibling when, when those behaviors occur. Yeah, but we can't stress enough, either one of us, um, the importance of getting good quality ABA on board. I know that it, we've had that a couple of people asking questions about that. ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. This is what Veronica does. She's a board certified behavior analyst um, and she she's coming to a place today telling you how much as a sibling it was life changing for her brother. He got very early ABA and now she's doing more advanced uh, ABA herself. And I'm telling you as a parent that my son was diagnosed with autism at two and a half, started ABA at three and is graduating from high school next week and off to college uh, to do a screenwriting program. My child who could not speak, my child who could not write, that we had a BIP, a behavior intervention plan at school, because he wouldn't hold a pencil and write, he would tantrum, and is going to college to be a screenwriter. Someone like, you know, dropped mics, like, but that's good quality ABA and a lot of it. At three, um, you know, what kind of, what amount of ABA are we, are we looking at, Veronica? 30 to 40 hours. It's a full time, as many of the, a week, as many of the waking hours as possible. Because again, it's, I always tell pam, families, especially new families, you know, if your child isn't speaking, they're three or four years old and they're not talking yet. They have a tremendous amount of vocabulary that they need to catch up on. And it's like learning a new language. And the best, fastest way to learn a new language is to be submerged in it for every waking minute of the day. So, you know, even for ourselves as, as adults, you know, you can try to take a foreign language class. If you do it for one or two hours a week, you're never gonna become fluent in that language. If you really wanna catch up and be able to be conversational in that language, you have to go to the country where they speak that language and you have to live it every single day. That's exactly what ABA is like. You have to live it every minute of the day because that is how you're gonna catch up to your peers. That's how you're gonna learn all of the skills that you need to really function independently. Um, and it's not about trying to, you know, make the kids normal or, or um, you know, try to, um, change who they are. It's just about teaching them those skills for them to get their needs met so that they can be as independent as possible and they can have as much autonomy as possible and have the highest quality of life possible. And thank you for saying that, that it's not about changing them. It's, it's about helping them to be who they are and not be frustrated. Absolutely. Um, I, I so appreciate that hearing from more and more BCBAs and clarifying their position on that. 
And I also want to say to you as a parent who's been through this, how important it is that we as caregivers learn what these therapists know um, so that we can also do it. And that when you see what they're doing, like in the beginning, I think it makes us a little bit mad, Veronica, because you guys come in and you're super fun and you're like, you get the kids playing and all of a sudden you ask them to do something and the kid does it that we've tried for six months and couldn't get them to do. And we're like, Hey, how, how, what's magical about you? But as much as I love all of you, and I do think that you are magical, the thing is, is that they're using techniques that are tried and true that have been proven to be scientifically effective uh, in these circumstances. And you can learn them too, um, which is sort of a really fun, you can be magic too. And when you do, it's not about punishing, it's about rewarding your child for doing the things that you ask them to do. You end up being a better parent and you have a better relationship, not only with the child on the spectrum, but I'm told with all of your children, because they go, oh, you mean if I do good stuff, then good stuff happens? Well, I want to do good stuff because that's how I get good attention. It's a pretty fabulous thing. And Veronica's life is, is built on that because you had that with your, with your brother. And our lives got built on that because we had that with my son. So you have two people from like different po points of view telling you same thing. And, and our topic today, I don't know if I shared this with you, we were talking about um, food selectivity and food issues. And I was saying to people, you know, if your child is just picky, like there are ways to deal with that yourself. We talked about some of them, but if your child is more, I was saying you need an expert and I was recommending an ABA expert to deal Absolutely. with this. Um, because they're good at a lot of different things and a lot of different behaviors. Um, so pretty incredible. Uh, saying hello to everybody who's writing in. Okay, we are, we're out of time. I can't even believe that we're totally out of time uh, because we didn't get to all the good things, but we're, we're completely out. But perhaps sometime we could have you come back and talk about more stuff. I would love to, Shannon. Thank you. Pantosha, this has been live, but we're about to end. Um, but, uh, absolutely adore you. And if you are a family in Texas and you haven't started ABA yet, uh, make sure you go to centerforautism.com because those are the, it, you know, Veronica is a part about making sure that she's a regional manager for central Texas. And she, she's very involved with those centers. I will tell you that card is in many places, not just Texas. Um, and in fact, they are in Virginia, but not everywhere in Virginia. So you'd have to look and see what the locations are. Um, and CARD is a really good quality ABA provider. I always like, and that's where my son was treated. So I extra love CARD. Um, but I also want you to know that we talk about this all the time on the show. There are other really good providers too, um, but not all ABA providers are equal and the same. And you should be talking to people to find out if you're going with a place that isn't CARD vet them first, make sure that they're doing good quality ABA and have people like Veronica. Nobody has people like Veronica. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why I love CARD. But anyway, you guys, we are back tomorrow with a great show. Don't miss it. Um, until then, thank you, Veronica, for being here. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks everybody for watching and writing in. CARD stands for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Somebody just said, what is CARD? Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Veronica works for them. Um, and this show is sponsored by me. Uh, sending you a big hug to Pandoja. Um, and we will see you guys tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one from you too. Bye-bye for now.